does God exist? Are we Christians silly for believing so? And are there any good arguments for God's existence? Well, we answer these questions and more. Next, with Dr. Matt Jordan, who holds a Ph.D. in philosophy from The Ohio State University. Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you, and enjoy. Dr. Jordan. Hello, Mr. Dome. Welcome back. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me back. It's, it means a lot that uh, that you didn't um, cancel me after that first episode. Yeah. No, no, no. We're happy to, happy to continue the conversation. Today, we're going to be talking about arguments for God's existence. But why? Why are we doing that? Well, you know, it's pretty important. I can say, um, for me personally, like, I'm somebody who's struggled through the years with what I believe and why I believe it. And in fact, I had a number of occasions when I was younger when I nearly gave up uh, belief in God entirely, or at least uh, any kind of practice of religion. Mm. And I can say from my own experience, uh, having thought through these kinds of arguments weren't the only thing that kept me in the fold, but uh, it was a big part of it. I mean, part of why I remained a Christian, even through some kind of dark times, was thinking through these kinds of philosophical questions and, and being persuaded intellectually that there really is a God, right? And again, that's not the same thing as a vibrant living faith, but it's a really helpful step in that direction. And I think it, it may be a little bit unusual for people to like go straight from straight up atheism to sincere belief mm-hmm. merely on the basis of these kinds of philosophical considerations. But... For believers, it can be a source of encouragement. And even for those who are outside the faith entirely, I think real value can be found in clearing away some of the obstacles to belief. Right? I think that that's maybe the main thing that philosophical arguments can do for people mm. who are curious about religion and are open, but they feel like, eh, you know, this isn't this isn't something I can take seriously as a intelligent, thoughtful person. Um, I think the, the kinds of arguments that we're going to talk about are really useful in terms of, of putting that sort of objection to rest. Yeah, so this is for anybody. Our tar- target audience fact, is anybody. anybody not even anybody. Like- I'm going to say everybody. Oh, boy. I think if you have a baby in a crib Losers. to a person <laughs> in a nursing home, I think e- e- from from zero to 105, this is yeah. really the podcast for you. Yeah, because it is the question. It is the biggest question. It really is. You know, I was being a little facetious with the zero to 105 thing. But, I mean, what question is more interesting or important than the question of whether or not God exists? You know, I think sometimes about, uh, as adults, sometimes we're no longer able to take the time to have these deep conversations. Yeah. You know, like sometimes... in if you went to college and you're up at two in the morning in a dorm room and you can have these conversations. Yes, and yes. I, I've thought sometimes that we ought to change the way our society works so that like everybody goes to high school and then you work at a job for maybe 10 years. And then if you want to go to college, you, you get five years off from your career to then do college when you're maybe 30 or so. Mm. I think most of us would do a lot better. But but no, you're right. I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of people through the years who get to – if not middle age, they, they get into adulthood before these kinds of questions really become pressing to them. Mm. And so, yeah, it's, it's great to have the opportunity to, to sit down and, and, and think and talk through some of these kinds of things. 
Well, there are at least a few dozen good arguments for God's existence, or at least categories that more arguments can fall into. But the beauty of it is that some of those arguments are really compelling, and they just arrest you right away. And it's like, that makes sense. That connects. Mm. That resonates. Uh, but others might not. But that's part of the reason to look at this and approach it from a bunch of different angles. There are some arguments for God's existence where I, I heard it the first time and I was like, that's that's mm -hmm. awesome. That's true. <laughs> Never thought of it that way. Love it. And even when objections, I hear objections to it, I'm still like, no, it still holds its power for me. Mm -hmm. And then there are other ones where I'm like, eh, it doesn't really, it doesn't really move me that much. But that's okay because we're all different. So we're going to cover a couple different ones here. And some of the most common ones, you may have, you may have heard of them. Uh, so where do we start? Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we start with what I think is probably the most, uh, what I think is the most intuitive argument and, and the one with the, the longest pedigree in philosophical discussions. Uh, and that's what's called the cosmological argument. Uh, that, are, are you familiar with that language, Tommy? I am. Cosmo <laughs> is on the front of that end, the front end of that. That's so right. it has that's to do with the cosmos. And a really fantastic uh, women's magazine is as well. <laughs> and Cosmo Kramer yeah. from Seinfeld, right. <clears throat> actually, but, I, I would like to go on record as saying I do not actually endorse Cosmo, the, the magazine. Just, <laughs> Nor do I just endorse everything in Seinfeld. <laughs> All right. So <clears throat> the cosmological arguments, that's sort of a category. And where does that get its information? Where does it draw its evidence? Yeah, great question. So we call them cosmological arguments because they have to do with the cosmos. They have to do with the universe. And the, the driving question behind all of these different, because there's a bunch of different versions of this argument, but what unites them all and why they all fall under the same heading is the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Now, I remember being in sixth grade. This is like the first philosophical intuition I ever had. I, I was outside one night. I was at a, a park and looking up at the sky and just sort of quietly thinking and, and, and reflecting on the stars and the moon. And it just struck me how weird it is that anything exists. <laughs> Maybe I should have realized then that I'd wind up becoming a philosophy professor <laughs> for a living. But it, it really is weird that anything at all exists. I mean, what would make sense would be if there was nothing, right? Like that would be a universe that you could totally, totally make sense out of. Just sheer nothingness. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be here to think about how, you know, simple it is yeah. and how, how easy to understand, but it would make sense. But the fact that there's all this stuff that exists, but it seems like it didn't have to, right? Or what philosophers call contingent things. So, you know, I, I didn't have to exist. If, if my parents hadn't met, then I, I wouldn't have existed, right? And they, and they almost didn't meet, or at least they, my parents broke up once. And, and mm. it wasn't until my, my mom happened to see my dad somewhere and then turned her car around and went back to, to talk to him. No way. Then they wound up getting married. If she hadn't turned the car around that day, I wouldn't exist, right? I'm, I'm a contingent being. And so what does the word contingent mean? So that's something that's, uh, that exists, but could have failed to exist as a, a contingent being. So, so it's not necessary. It's not necessary. Um, not in itself. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's a good, precise way to put it. Not necessary in itself. So, Tommy, I don't know uh, if I'm the first one to break this to you, but you are a contingent being. Uh, 
<laughs> these microphones that we're speaking into are contingent. They didn't have to exist. The, you know, the, the building that we're sitting in is contingent. The planet Earth is a contingent thing. It didn't have to exist. In fact, you can, you can say that the entirety of the physical order, right? Everything that exists has an explanation for its existence in something else. So if you want to make sense out of my existence or this table's existence or this building's existence, you have to point to something outside of me, outside of the table, outside of the building to explain it. Well, that series of explanations uh, of, uh, of making sense out of why something exists in terms of something else that explains its existence, that series can't go on forever and ever. There's got to be something that simply is, something to, to use the term you just used a minute ago, something that is necessary in itself, something that could not have failed to exist, that simply is, that explains the existence of everything else. So it might be helpful to think, in, like a Professional philosophers would quibble with this a bit, but I think for our purposes, you could think of a contingent thing as something whose existence is dependent upon something else, right? Uh, so if, if that's, if the language of contingency versus necessity isn't helpful, maybe if you think of things that are dependent on something else versus something that is dependent on nothing else, right? That, that has existence as part of its very nature, that, that's again, something that simply is. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, of course, is the entity that we call God. And again, this this kind of argument comes in different flavors and stripes. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas very famously offered a version of this argument, uh, and it really traces at least as far back as Aristotle, uh, who had a big influence on Aquinas. But that, that basic line of thought of finding some ultimate reality whose existence is the source of all of the contingent, dependent, changing things uh, that we see around us. In the cosmos. The it. In the cosmos. Yes, the cosmos itself. Because there's nothing in the universe that explains the existence of the whole universe. Exactly. And there's nothing that we found in the universe that can make another universe. <laughs> well, that's right. Though even if there even if there was, if there was some thing we found that could, you know, some fancy machine that, that causes universes to pop into existence – that thing itself would need an explanation. Yeah, where'd the machine right? come from? Exactly, yeah. So the universe doesn't explain itself. So are we just, are we inventing an explanation and saying, oh, that's God? That's a great question. The answer is no, we're not just inventing it. What we're seeing is that this line of questions that we started with, if if A, if the existence of A is caused by the existence of B or explained by the existence of B, and the existence of B is explained by the existence of C, and the existence of C is explained by the existence of D, and mm-hmm. on and on and on. That cannot go on forever. You can't have what's called an infinite regress. There has to be some origin of the existence itself. So here's an analogy that, that some people have, have used. So you, imagine a, a fun house with one of those infinity mirrors, right? Where okay. to, because of the way the mirrors are set up, you have this, this image that's reflected and reflected and reflected and reflected. And you can take that series extremely far, right? You could have hundreds or thousands or millions of mirrors set up in such a way that the image in the first mirror is there because it's reflecting the image from the second mirror, is there because it's reflecting the image from the third mirror, reflecting the image from the fourth mirror, and on and on and on. But where does the image come from? <laughs> right? yeah, there's, there's something be... in front of the mirror. Exactly. There has to be something that has to stop mirrors. somewhere. If it's just mirrors all the way down, 
you never get to the the image that's being reflected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the same logic, but applied to the question of how a contingent thing that did not have to exist comes to exist anyway. That there's got to be something whose explanation for its being is its own nature, something that simply is. And again, as Aquinas said, that is what all men call God. One of the analogies I've heard is what pulls, if you think about trains, what pulls the caboose? Mm. Well, what pulls the caboose is the car in front of the caboose. Mm -hmm. And what pulls the car in front of the caboose? The car in front of the caboose. (laughs) And eventually you get to another car called the locomotive. Mm -hmm. But there's something special about the locomotive. (laughs) The locomotive has power in itself to pull itself and pull everything behind it. Great analogy. And again, if there was not something that could pull itself, the train couldn't be moving in the first place. Okay. Well, one of the most popular ways to phrase this argument in the past couple of decades is called the Kalam cosmological oh, I argument. I love the Kalam cosmological <laughs> argument. So it's, it's pretty short and it's mm-hmm. pretty easy to understand. And it's just really two premises and a conclusion. So... What are they? Well, let's talk about that. And, you know, Tommy, notice you're throwing around this language of premises and conclusions like like a logic professor over here. Um, uh, is that uh, – do you want to take a second to explain what we're talking about when we say arguments and premises and conclusions? Because I, I know that those would, terms can be confusing sometimes. I would love you to explain it. Well, I'd be honored <laughs> to. Okay. So I know from having taught philosophy for a lot of years, sometimes the word argument – does cause people to kind of scratch their heads like, wait, 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 wait a minute. I thought we're supposed to be nice to each other, right? Because they, they hear the word argument mm-hmm. and they think, oh, well, this is people having a fight, right? This yeah. is this is a husband and a wife throwing plates at each other in and, the kitchen or something. And I am conflict averse. <laughs> As am I. I don't want that. I, I don't see any plates in here, but if there are any, I don't want you to throw them at me. Uh, and of course, when philosophers and theologians talk about arguments, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about the kind of arguments we might have in a court of law, right? Where an argument is a series of statements that's offered in support of some kind of position, some kind of idea. And we call those statements either premises or conclusions. So the the conclusion of the argument is the thing that we're, we're trying to persuade somebody to believe. And the premises are all the pieces of evidence that, that when you take them together, they support the conclusion. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. They lead to it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, and Tommy, like you said, the Kalam cosmological argument has the advantage of – oh, sorry. I should pause. I feel like we should noti- notify the listeners if they're wondering what on earth is that word, Kalam. Um yes is uh, an Arabic word. It actually, this idea has its roots in medieval Islamic philosophy. And uh, so the word is not a familiar one to most English speakers. It's actually spelled K-A-L-A-M. So the Kalam cosmological argument, if you're interested in, in reading more about this online, there's certainly lots of stuff out there about it, both arguing for it and critiquing it. But here's how it goes. Very, very simple, straightforward argument. The first claim, the first premise is this. Everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. Everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. The second claim is this. The universe began to exist. Mm. You see where this is going? I see where it's going. We're like round and third. Here we (laughs) go. Right. And that gets you immediately with all the force of deductive logic behind it (laughs) to the, the first conclusion of the argument. Therefore, the universe has a cause for its existence. Uh, and that is a valid and sound argument. That is a, a, those assertions are true. Everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. 
The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause for its existence. And then the only place where I I really think that there's room to to open a critique of this argument is the move then to a further conclusion, which is uh, something like, therefore God exists, right? Or, or, Or we might be a little more careful and say something like, whatever causes the universe to exist is what we call God, right? Okay. Um, and, and where critics will point to at this, at this place to say, well, wait, wait a minute there, Churchy, right? You, you think you're very clever, but all you've demonstrated is that the universe has a cause for its existence. You haven't shown that this being is perfectly good. You haven't shown that this is uh, an all-knowing, an all-powerful being. Mm-hmm. You haven't shown that it's a mind. All you've done is show that there is some thing outside the universe that causes the universe to exist. A universe maker. Yeah, exactly. So... And that's that. That is correct as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. <laughs> yeah, because I, mean, I mean, the purpose of it isn't to prove everything about the Christian Trinitarian right. God. Exactly. It's just uh, the one way I heard uh, a philosophy professor guy author uh, put it was, it doesn't prove the whole pie, but it's <laughs> a large enough slice of the pie to refute the atheist. Yeah, I, that's a nice way to put it. I mean. Here's how I tend to think about it, or at least part of how I think about it. Most contemporary atheists think of the physical universe as being the totality of reality. It is everything that there is. So <laughs> to concede that actually the universe owes its existence to something outside of itself, like that's, to use the technical language, that is a big honking deal, right? <laughs> like that. That's a really significant thing for the atheist to concede because now we very quickly can show that whatever the story about ultimate reality might be, you've at least got to have theism on the table as a real option, right? You can no longer pretend like it's it's a, a sensible thing to believe that the entirety of the physical universe is the entirety of reality with a capital R. Um, that's very, very significant. And there's also some arguments, and I don't know, I don't think we should probably try to get into them today uh, because they they get a little more technical. But there are certainly philosophers who have argued, Aquinas uh, not least among them, that actually you can go further. That uh, when you think seriously about what is, uh, what's required in order for a being to be the cause of the universe, uh, you can actually deduce a number of the divine attributes uh, and see that there must be a being who is all-powerful, who is fully actualized, and so on. Uh, although, I'm not certain you can get there from the Kalam version of the argument itself. Mm-hmm. You, you might need a, a different version of the argument in order to, to make that kind of case. So but if you're, the... if you're putting it this way, let, let me, let me – uh, I'll give one more sales pitch for this kind of Kalam cosmological argument. If someone is genuinely wondering what is reality like, you know, how do we locate our place in all of reality? Uh, could there be a god? If you think of the Kalam cosmological argument as one of a number of signposts that that sort of give us hints as to the sort of universe we live in, I think it's a very powerful consideration in favor of a theistic view of reality rather than an atheistic one. Okay. Yeah, so we have different arguments. They can sort of prove different pieces of that pie. But at the same time, there are certain things beyond mere uh, just just reason and logic, and that's where divine revelation comes in? That's right. Yeah. So, like, for example, I mean, if somebody's struggling with what they believe, 
uh, I might point them to the Kalam cosmological argument, not because I think that that all by itself is going to make them into a Christian, but it's a cogent argument, and I think it it opens the door for someone to consider, say, the claims of Christ, right? That that you can't dismiss Jesus's talk about God the Father on the grounds that, well, we know that the the physical world is all there is. No, because the Kalam argument shows that there's something beyond the universe that explains the existence of the universe. Awesome. All right. Well, that was the first one. That was uh, the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, and we did the explanation verse uh, based version, right? We, we did two cosmological arguments there. Mm, okay. Okay. We're yeah. just, we're flying through we're flying. all of natural Let's get theology. To another because, <laughs> well, remember who we mentioned last time? Last time we mentioned a Belgian priest. We did. Father George Lemaitre. Yes. And he was one of those science loving Catholic yeah. priests. There have been many through really, the millennia. Really creating hard times for all the people who insist that you can't be <laughs> religious and, and a scientist. Yeah. And through his observations, and it was later confirmed by many, many, many others, and it's something we still believe today, is that the universe is expanding, mm. which means it's bigger today than it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. And that means, hmm, it used to be smaller. It used to be smaller. It's a little bit of... misleading yeah. terminology, but... That gets us that back to me. this Big Bang, right? Yeah. So we go, what, 13 billion, 13.8 billion years yeah, ago, yeah, yeah. and we got a, a Big Bang. And some folks look back at that and say, oh, that's the moment of creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Super... that makes me feel good. <laughs> and it should. I, I'm not an astrophysicist thing. or a PhD in philosophy, but I look back <laughs> at that and I can say, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for one thing, it's nice, Tommy, just when you feel good, right? I mean, that, that's just <laughs> the world's a better place me, when Tommy yes. Dome feels good. But you should feel good about it. And this has been one of my little uh, philosophical pet peeves for as long as I've been thinking about this stuff. I mean, for, you know, 20 years or more since I was in college, that an awful lot of people, both Christians and atheists, seem to think that the Big Bang is somehow an alternative to belief in God. And it's just emphatically the opposite, right? The the Big Bang is a huge problem for the atheist for the very reasons that the, the Kalam argument points to, right? If you're an atheist, here's what you should want. <laughs> if you're an atheist, you should want a universe that has clearly always existed just as it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because then there's no there's no driving need to find some other thing that explains. I mean, I, I, I do think there are other arguments like the uh, explanation-based version that we started with that would still point us to theism, even if we thought the universe never began. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the universe began to exist is a huge problem for atheism. Cries out for an explanation. Suddenly now you need something in your view of reality that can explain the existence of a universe. Um, And boy, again, that sure starts to sound a lot like believing in God. And if you think, if someone came up to you and they showed you something, a material thing, even if it was uh, like a rock, but -hmm. especially if it was a fork or a watch (laughs) and they said, uh, how did, uh, why is this here? How did this Mm -hmm. come here? And you're just like, I don't know. It's always been here. Like, that would be pretty, that would be not satisfying at all. Be that like, would whoa, not whoa, wait be super satisfying. I, I kind of right. have a lot of human experience that there's cause and effect. Right. And pretty Things much we can look at everything around us. Pop into it. Or, or even worse, say, right? Even worse than saying it's always been here is like, oh, it actually just popped into existence. Right. Yeah. It wasn't here. And then it started existing. Boom. For yeah. no reason. For no reason at all. There is no explanation. Yeah. And when you turn that 
gaze not just on a rock or a fork or a watch to the whole universe itself, because the universe yeah. is a you know physical thing, then then we have to say, what is the explanation? So to sum that up, how do you answer the young kid with, if God created everything, who created God? I would say, kid, you weren't listening carefully. <laughs> I do the train thing. That's what I do. I do the train thing. What no, would you do? It's really good, but it's, I mean, if if we're looking specifically at the Kalam version of the cosmological argument, the, the, the first premise of the argument is everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. Yeah. Right? So the wording is very precise. It doesn't, it doesn't just say everything has a cause. Right. And a lot of atheists will caricature all of these arguments in that sort of way, but there's no serious philosopher. And Nearly all of the great philosophers in the Western tradition, I mean, Plato, Aristotle, Neoplatinus, uh, Augustine, Anselm Aquinas, Leibniz, Descartes, Locke. I mean, so many of these giants in the history of philosophy were all theists of one stripe or another. Many of those people offered versions of the cosmological argument. Not one of them ever said anything as patently silly and shallow as everything has a cause for its existence. It's always something more nuanced, right? And something yeah. that's that's more plausibly true, like everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. That's why, according to the Kalam argument, we need an explanation for the universe, right? But the idea is that the whatever that foundational entity is, it must be something eternal. It must be something that didn't simply begin, that didn't begin to exist itself because then it too would in fact need an explanation. Mm -hmm. But that's not the claim being made. So when the kid asks, if God created everything, who created God? We have to talk about that word God. And the definition of God is the one who did not begin to exist. That's right. But it, causes the existence. And of you know, it's things. very interesting, Tommy. And I think that this can be a, a, one of those places where the study of philosophy can be genuinely edifying and a, and a boon to our faith is all of these considerations we've been talking about really are purely philosophical, right? You, you don't need any religious um, background or, or, or knowledge in order to, to do the sort of reflection we just did. But isn't it interesting in light of everything we're just saying that in the Bible, when Moses approaches the burning bush and asks God, what is like, who is it who sent me to give me your name? Like, what is the name that God gives Moses? I am, right? I am that I am <laughs> in some translations, right? That's extraordinary, right? That, that this Hebrew tribe of people living in the desert, um, that what they would land on in their conception of God, which they claim to be a genuine divine revelation, right? But what they landed on in their conception of God is this idea of I am that I am, which dovetails so powerfully with this very rich philosophical tradition of thinking about the ultimate reality. Yeah. And I know Bishop Barron, who you follow as well, <laughs> this is one of the things he's always harping on is mm -hmm. the mistaken notion that some who, who don't believe in God think that God is another thing in the universe. Yes. But yeah. <laughs> it's completely different, yep. right? When the scriptures say, uh, you know, he holds all things in being. Mm -hmm. Like he's granting existence to, to everything. Yeah. If you're picturing continues. Zeus or Odin or, you know, one of these kinds of very powerful beings, like you're just, that's a grossly inadequate conception of God. God is not a thing in reality. God is the foundation of all reality itself. He ultimately yeah. transcends all of our categories. And isn't it beautiful as we continue to discover more about the universe, we see, man, it is so big. 
it is so so ridiculously big <laughs> and if you just like type into <sighs> type into your phone or computer how big is the universe and you begin to l- hear some of these analogies about how so enormous it is you're you, one of the first lessons is well god is powerful and we are special and those are two very important things to learn that <laughs> that science can help help give us a foundation for but let's continue with the science stuff get into another all right ex, uh, or argument or reason to believe in god and that is the cosmic uh, fine tuning oh, argument oh yeah yeah okay. this is a good one this is one uh so i'll be honest i'm always a little bit leery of this one only because or primarily because I am not a scientist, and it's always tempting, you know, if you're standing in front of a room giving a lecture or if you're sitting in front of a microphone being recorded, mm-hmm. it's kind of tempting to pretend that you know a lot more than you do, <laughs> uh, and I, I try to resist that temptation. My background is in philosophy, not theoretical physics or chemistry or any of the other disciplines that get pointed to here or astrophysics, but um, it's a really interesting, and I think many people would say uh, probably the most compelling sort of argument available to us today. In fact, there was a rather famous conversion about uh, maybe 15 years ago now, uh, a guy named Anthony Flew, who for many uh, decades in the 20th century was considered one of the world's foremost atheistic philosophers of religion, actually became a theist. Uh, To the best of my knowledge, he never became uh, a Christian, but he became a believer in some kind of God toward the end of his life because of contemporary versions of these cosmic fine-tuning arguments or or Mm -hmm. what are more broadly called design arguments. And he was famous. He would debate people on God's existence decades ago. So it was was a pretty big deal when he... he, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think he taught at Oxford... It was a philosophical conversion, right? It wasn't um, a religious conversion. He didn't get baptized or something. But he did convert from atheism to to either deism or some kind of theism. Yeah, one way of thinking to another. Yeah. Uh, And the basic idea, Tommy, is that the more we've learned about the structure of physical reality, the more it looks like there must have been an intelligence at work behind it all, right? And so as scientists have investigated the fundamental laws of the universe, you get some, and I've got a few examples that I I jotted down in front of me here, Uh, but we were talking the Big Bang a minute ago. So, you know, the the rate of expansion of the Big Bang, how, how rapidly did that take place? Well, it turns out that in order for the, the universe to uh, cool and for the, elements to be formed for um, for there to be stars and planets and all of the you know the the whirling buzzing things in the cosmos <laughs> for all of that to be the uh, strength of the big bang couldn't have varied by more than uh, one part in 10 to the 60th so that's a, that's a 10 with 60 10 zeros with behind 60 it 60 yes. zeros so what you're saying is it just so happens to be interestingly yep. just right just Perfect. Because if it was off by just, just a tiny, teensy, tiny hair, teensy little bit, then yeah. it would have expanded so quick that none of the matter would have clumped together. Exactly. To make stars and or planets and all that. if it had been too small, just a tiny, tiny bit in the other direction, yep. it would have collapsed back in on itself. The, gra- the power of, the gravi- of gravity would have uh, condensed everything back. Exactly. And those who are, are merely listening and don't have the privilege of sitting here, Tommy was giving some very helpful hand oh, gestures yes. to illustrate. So Excessive. Um, gesticulation. So so that's that's one of them. Um the force of gravity. 
can't differ by more than one part in 10 to the 40th. Uh, neutrons have to have a mass that's uh, approximately 1.001 times the mass of protons. Uh, the strong nuclear force that um, you know, governs the behavior of subatomic particles can't be stronger or weaker by more than 5%. It turns out that all of these different values, so, you know, if you picture like a control panel on an old science fiction, you know, movie, and there's a control panel with all these dials, right? And, and each dial has... In some of these cases, it would be millions of little notches, but even just picture a few hundred little notches. And each one has to be turned to like just the right place for any sort of physical life to be possible. I, and it's worth noting, here, here's one place where sometimes people go wrong. They, they, hear, they hear advocates of the design argument say, well, there has to be fine tuning or there wouldn't be life. And they think that, that what the philosopher means is there wouldn't be life like us. And they say, oh, well, maybe, but, but there could be like aliens and there could be different kinds of life. No, 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 no. For there to be any kind of life at all, there at least has to be chemistry, right? You, you've got to have organic chemistry to have mm -hmm. anything remotely like what we call life. And in order for there to be organic chemistry, you need a finely tuned universe. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not saying in order to have human beings, you need a fine tuned universe. It's to say in order to have chemistry <laughs> in the universe, it has to be fine-tuned, and it is fine-tuned. And this is, it's just, it's extraordinary uh, how small the range of values is that, that have to be lined up in order for there to be life. Imagine you had a neighborhood garage sale, and everybody brought all the junk out of their basements. Not just some of the junk, but they took the time to bring all their junk, okay? <laughs> and then everybody in the whole neighborhood was like, okay, look at all these tens of thousands of items, and then they're like, let's stack them all on top of one another and balance them. <laughs> it's like if yeah. you could balance 10,000 basement junk items on top of one another mm -hmm. and it wouldn't fall. It's like <laughs> that's not even approaching just how rare it is that our universe <laughs> yeah. exists the way it is to yep. the point where it can sustain life, where life can happen and life can be sustained. Because we have just the perfect size star, everybody, <laughs> the sun. And we're the perfect distance away from it and we've got just enough things happening on this earth with the all the tectonic activity to create an atmosphere where we could have air mm -hmm. and we could live yeah that's a that's a really fascinating set of considerations that other philosophers have pointed to as well there's an interesting book out there called the privileged planet if anybody's interested in this particular version it looks just specifically at our circumstances here on Earth. Um, I think it's worth noting that that is a different version of the design argument. Um, though, again, if we're talking in terms of signposts, to use the, the language I did a few minutes ago, right? What kind of universe do we inhabit? What can we infer from the universe we find ourselves in about reality with a capital R? Mm -hmm. um, that's another one of those things where it's like, boy, it, it sure doesn't seem like any of these things had to be put together this way. And yeah. yet, they are. And right. if they were, and it was all random chance, boy, that is such a small mm -hmm. random chance. Isn't it curious? Isn't that <laughs> interesting? Doesn't that sort of make you think, hmm, did it someone does. design it like this? Was someone, was there someone there to spin all those dials and get them just right? It absolutely does. I, I, I think it is important to note in, in striving to be intellectually honest, right? You made the point a few minutes ago about just how, how incredibly huge the physical universe is, right? And I think um, the, the circumstances of 
Earth and our solar system and our position in it uh, and, and our position relative to the rest of the Milky Way that makes scientific discoveries of various kinds possible. All of these things I think are fascinating and, and edifying. I do think it's important to note that because the universe is so big, this is going to be less troubling for the thoughtful atheist because the thoughtful atheist is going to say, eh, the universe is so unbelievably humongous and there are so many uncountably millions of planets and stars sure. that – yeah, I, I'm fine with the idea that we just sort of got a lucky roll of the dice here in our particular solar system. And sure, that doesn't – I think the the smart atheist is going to be less troubled by that than they should be by the fundamental constants of physics themselves. Uh, so it's, a, it's worth noting that it's two different arguments. So earlier this week, uh, I'm helping out with a middle school ministry program, and it just started. And so one of our first nights was – does God exist? Good so place we, to start. We we talked a little bit about this fine tuning argument. I found a really good like graphic representation, three minute YouTube video. But then, because uh, it was working with middle schoolers, here's what <laughs> we did: I li we lined everybody up, so like 40, 50 kids in the gym uh, under one basket, like behind the <laughs> baseline of this basketball court. And I was telling them, I said, imagine there are ten to the 120th power of you. You know, a 10 followed by 120 zeros. And it was like, imagine you a lot all... of middle schoolers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. That would smell terrible. <laughs> I said, imagine each one of you had a pellet of dog food. And then there was one dog, and he came, and out of everybody <laughs> calling his name, all those people, he chose you <laughs> and came to get the dog food pellet out of your hand. And then we handed out pellets of dog food. And then they were like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> and then we literally pulled a curtain and my puppy was on the other side of the gym. So we released this puppy and there's like 50 kids all saying, Beckett, Beckett, because that's his name. And they're all holding out dog food. And my nine-month-old puppy was just like, what's happening? <laughs> he didn't know what was going on at all. And, and he did not run towards everyone. He was just like sniffing, was like, what's that? And all this echoes in the gym and middle schoolers can scream so much louder yeah. than me, a grown man. And uh, and finally the dog like found a, a door and like went out of it because he was just freaking out. But it still made the case and they understood it. So now they understand the design argument. I, well, or now they're like, hey, this thing at church has puppies. I might go back. So it was a two, twofer. That's, that's really good. Very yeah. effective. <laughs> Are we done with fine-tuning? I think so. I mean, I think the, the, the other big point to note is that we, we really can discern the presence of an intelligent agent at work, right? Maybe we can't do it perfectly, but this is another one of those things people sometimes miss is they think it's just hopeless or they'll say things like, well, when you're doing science, you're simply not allowed to appeal to the work of an intelligent agent. And that's, that's not true, right? So there's all these kinds of things like forensic science where uh, a detective is investigating a, a murder case or, or rather um, they know that someone has died. And then one of the things that they're going to work to figure out is was this an accident or was mm. this intentional? Right? Yeah, that's, Columbo, baby. That's, that's right. Um, and, you know, My might, daughter might go to Halloween as Columbo. Oh, that'd be a great way. choice. I great know. Great choice. 
He might be a little frumpy, um, yeah. but he's charming and he's darn clever. Uh, I mean, she already smokes cigars. So. Well, there you, <laughs> there I'm you joking. go. I'm joking. Yeah, there you go. But we can discern the work of intelligence. And uh, I think, the, the again, the evidence we have uh, from contemporary science is very, very pow- powerful in that regard and suggests that an intelligent mind was at work in establishing the basic parameters of the universe mm. we live in. Yeah. That, I never heard that, that, uh, that, uh, analogy to like a, a homicide detective. Mm-hmm. That's good because you wouldn't rule out someone did this. Right. Exactly. You'd be like, you don't just assume up. Oh, yeah. I guess this person's dead. So I guess that yeah, yep. we're being scientific here. So we can't assume that somebody the else did it. Flew into their yeah. body. Or like the SETI program, right? The search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Like mm-hmm. the whole idea of all of those radio telescopes out in the desert is that you can at least reasonably hope <laughs> to tell the difference between a natural radio signal and something that is created by an intelligent being. Even if we don't understand the language they're using or don't know what the message is they're trying to communicate, we can mm-hmm. see the difference between something that happens because of physical law yeah, or point. randomness versus something that happens because of intelligence. All right, well, let's talk about a guy you really like. Yeah, okay. Who's that? That a lot of people like, actually, and that's C.S. Lewis. I do like C.S. Lewis. You don't have a kid named after C.S. Lewis? What? My son John is John Lewis Jordan. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So that makes me think that you probably want to talk about what Peter Kraft and others have called the argument from desire. Is that possibly correct? I like it. I think it's kind of cool. I do too. I, I did a, a paper it's not this a science, year at college. Science, uh, uh, it's not a science-based argument. It sort of goes inside inside us yeah, to our yeah. hearts. Our no, I, I love this argument. This is one that um, I think – you know, you said when we started out, different arguments resonate with people in different ways. And this is one that I think professional philosophers are less likely to be super impressed by. But boy, for me personally, this is one that has always spoken to me deeply. Um, and and here's the basic idea is that we have a natural desire for something more. Right? There's this longing for, for meaning, for beauty, for goodness, that even the best experiences in life don't really satisfy. And there's all kinds of quotations you can point to. There's, there's people who lived across the globe through history who say things like this. You, know, you get it mm-hmm. in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, you get it from people like the French philosopher Blaise Pascal. Uh, there's, a, there's a quote actually from Tom Brady, the, the quarterback, uh, back when he was much younger and only won like two or three Super Bowls. Yeah. Uh, but he was on 60 Minutes. I remember watching this and just being really struck by it. And and the quote, the last time I checked was still on, on YouTube. If you search for Tom Brady, 60 Minutes uh, Super Bowl or something. And he has this this line when he's talking about being on the field as the MVP of the Super Bowl and saying, is this it? Is like, this all there is? Yeah. Is this, there, there's got to be something more than this, right? Like I saw that video a couple days ago. Really? Actually. Huh. And I mentioned it to the middle schoolers How about on this? Tuesday because oh, this middle schoolers like a love as well. puppies and Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. That's so funny. That is fantastic. That yeah. No, that's, yeah. So I think it's a great illustration of the fact that there really is this desire in human beings for something more. Right? Maybe not everybody feels it intensely. Maybe there's some people who don't feel it at all. That's okay. That's compatible with this being a good argument. But there, there seem to be an awful lot of us 
who can't shake this feeling that what we do matters, right? And that there's something more to the world than than what's offered even in the best experiences of mm-hmm. life. Right? And this is a point that Lewis makes in his book, Near Christianity, and in a terrific essay he wrote, or rather a sermon he gave called The Weight of Glory, as well as some of his other writings. Um, but he points out in Mere Christianity, he says, you know, even, um, even the happiest of marriages, right, aren't the sorts of things that can satisfy our deepest longings, right? And, and all the more so for the, the other goods of life, like the, the best of meals, the, the finest arts, um, the greatest scientific investigations. All of those things are capable of satisfying us in limited sorts of ways, but they also all ultimately are less than, than what we want, right? We, we want something more, something transcendent, something that can satisfy these ultimate longings. So, so this is an argument from C.S. Lewis, and yeah, he's the guy who wrote Chronicles of Narnia mm-hmm. and Screw Tape Letters. So he says that human beings have some desires that they all share. Of course, Close. we have some. So, so there are some. Let's put it this way: what he wants to say is that there are some natural desires, right? Meaning that they're grounded in our nature rather than being mere like social conventions. Does that make sense? So, <laughs> so for a desire to be natural doesn't mean that everybody experiences it. It just means that it's grounded within us. It's, it's part of what we are as human beings rather than something that's created by society. So like here's – Give us one, some more examples. Sure, yeah. So, you know, I have a desire for um, – intimacy with my wife. I have a desire for food. I have a desire for air. I have a desire for meaning, Lewis and I w- mm-hmm. would say. Truth all of those knowledge. Are, yeah. All of those are, are natural desires grounded in human nature. I also have a desire for the Cleveland Browns to win the Super Bowl, right? And I have a desire for the Pittsburgh Steelers to lose all of their games, right? And I, I have a but desire... that's not universal to all humans. Well, but again, the issue isn't whether it's universal to all humans. The issue is, is where does it come from, right? So like my desire for the Browns to win the Super Bowl um, can be totally explained by the fact that I was born and raised in Northeast Ohio, right? And uh-huh. so it's it's a real desire. It's one that I keenly feel, but it's not natural, right? And there are there are lots and lots of human beings who <laughs> who don't experience that because again, it's not grounded in human nature. But those other things are, right? And so that's the claim that the the contentious claim that Lewis is making here is that. This desire for meaning and beauty and goodness that can't be satisfied by the mundane features of physical reality, that that is itself a natural desire. And that's why it's useful to point to the fact that you see people in different cultural contexts at different times and places throughout history all expressing versions of the same desire. That That's a strong indicator that it is, in fact, natural in a way that wanting the Browns to win the Super Bowl isn't, right? That there isn't anyone writing the Hebrew scriptures who, you know, <laughs> who articulates a desire for the Browns to, to mm-hmm. be champions mm-hmm. because that's c- culturally conditioned. That's the idea. And then the second key claim... Uh, and this is kind of like that Kalam argument we started with. It's a very short argument when we really get down to it. The, the first key claim is that human beings have a natural desire for something that goes beyond what the physical world can satisfy. And then the second key claim is that if we have a natural desire for something, that's evidence that something exists that can fill it. In other words, nature does not make desires in vain. So 
The fact that human beings have a desire for sexual fulfillment, for food, for air, for knowledge, right? The fact that we have those desires is itself evidence that sexual intimacy, food, air, and knowledge actually exist, right? Um, it, it would be bizarre if there was a desire that we had in us by nature that couldn't be fulfilled by anything in the world. Well, <laughs> what does that tell us? And if we put those two ideas together, mm -hmm. if we say that, that human beings have a natural desire for something beyond the physical world and that our natural desires always reflect a real thing that can satisfy those desires, those two claims together entail that there's something more than the physical that can satisfy us. That's the basic idea. Uh, and then again, that would be another pointer. So let God. me try and try and oversimplify it and dumb it down for myself. <laughs> so uh, it's natural for humans to desire knowledge and truth. And look at that. There is such a thing as knowledge and mm -hmm. truth. It's natural for humans to desire food. Look at that. And when we all get hungry, look at that. There's such mm -hmm. a thing as food. They, we have thirst and we have a way to satisfy that thirst. Mm -hmm. There are drinks. We all get tired and there is sleep. And we all have this desire that we find. And we can also sort of numb it or stomp it or try and mm -hmm. silence it or distract ourselves from it. But we all have this also, this natural desire for infinite mm -hmm. beauty, truth, mm -hmm. and goodness. I mean, we don't get up in the morning and say, I, I hope somebody lies to me today. <laughs> no, we want to be, we want to know the truth. We never say, oh, you know, I've heard enough beautiful songs. <laughs> no one, no artists need to make anymore. It's like, no, no, every, every beautiful song captures something of that, 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 like infinite beauty. We want infinite goodness too. And we want to be good. So if all those other natural desires have a corresponding reality mm -hmm. that satisfies those desires, then look at this other desire for more, for infinite, then there's likely a, a satisfaction for that desire yeah. too. It seems to be yet another pointer toward the existence of something beyond the physical that can fulfill those longings, right? Yeah. There's the great line. I actually brought the line from, from Lewis's Mere Christianity. Do you mind if I share yeah, this, yeah. this quote? Where he, uh, Lewis writes this. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire? Well, there is such a thing as sex. Right? It's not to say that these desires are always satisfied. Um, but again, the fact that they are natural desires tells us that those things that correspond to them really do exist. All right. You want to know how we did this one to, for middle schoolers? Yeah. So we told this, th this idea, you know, um, and then I mentioned the Tom Brady <laughs> and then we, I had signs, made signs. One said, I'm hungry. And they wore this sign around their neck. And then another one, I'm thirsty. Another one, I'm tired. Uh, another one, I'm curious. And we put them all on one side of the gym and blindfolded them. And then we put uh, like the corresponding realities. <laughs> so one just said, I'm food, <laughs> I'm drinks, I'm sleep, I'm knowledge. And they were on the other side of the gym, blindfolded. <laughs> and then we said, which was a huge mistake, by the way, we said, <laughs> all right, you blindfolded people, find 
your match. <laughs> so you got blindfolded kids at either end of the gym just yelling out what's on their sign, right? <laughs> so they're like, I'm hungry. And, so, and another kid is like, I'm food. Where are you, hunger? And they had to find each other. Now, everybody else in the crowd decided to also scream. Of so course, yeah. T- like mostly I mean. didn't work. But I thought there was a lesson in there too about how hard it is to satisfy <laughs> these desires sometimes. And then after we did that, we had one more kid on the on the one end of the gym and another on the other. And one just said, I want more. Mm. And then the other person, uh, their sign, you know, I said, I am God or there mm. is heaven. And they and they found one another uh, at midcourt, you know, and it was like, this is, this is, uh, this is good. This is That's beautiful. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. But when we did it with high schoolers, because we did this with high schoolers <laughs> when I was the East Minister like eight years ago. So then we included the. Another kid who's like, I want sex. And then another person who said, I am sex. <laughs> so we didn't do that with the middle schoolers for obvious reasons. I think that's a prudent but choice. The so high schoolers good, good did get that. quite a kick. I have that. no doubt. What, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, Dr. J, Dr. Jordan, Dr. Matt Jordan. We're talking reasons to believe in God, yes. arguments for God's existence. Mm-hmm. And here's our last one. Okay. Okay. There are many more that we didn't even mention, but here's the last one we're going to talk about today. And that is an argument from morality. What is morality? How does morality point us towards a perfect being? All right. Well, I want to note that we are close to the end of our time. So I'm going to try to make this one quick. And then, I don't know, maybe, you know, if it goes well, you know, you're, you're, if it throngs. goes well, we'll keep going for a couple more hours. Oh, okay, great. I was going to say your throngs <laughs> of listeners could could contact you and say, please give us more of the argument for morality. We're 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 you know we are in a dry and weary land. <laughs> Our throats well, that, are parched. That does for remind more. me. So this is the second in a series of three <laughs> podcasts we're doing with Dr. Matt Jordan here. The first one was about faith and science, and we talked creation and evolution and creationism. We talked about Galileo. We talked about Big Bang, and then. Uh, today, we're talking territory. about arguments of God's existence. And then in the future, soon, we're going to do yeah. a third episode, which is the big boy. I mean, does God exist? It's pretty big. Yeah, that's a pretty but, big question. Uh, a actually. big objection it, yeah. to God's existence is how could there be a good and loving God yeah. if there's evil and suffering in the world? So we're going to cover that next time. That's a huge question. That deserves its own own podcast episode. But yeah, take us into a little bit in the uh, argument from morality. Yeah. Well, I guess I would want to point quickly to two things, right? One is the existence of genuine moral obligations themselves. So we... <laughs> We talk an awful lot in America today about what justice requires of us, right? We, we seem to have a very strong sense uh, in a way that I don't think we did 25 or 30 years ago, at least the way our public conversations are going, about what justice requires and what is right and wrong, what is acceptable and unacceptable, and the idea that there there might be obligations on me um, that have nothing to do with what I myself might have chosen or what I myself might like or prefer, but that simply I have a duty to work for the sake of justice in various kinds. And that's, a again, a duty that um, impinges upon me whether I agree with it or not, right? It's simply justice has its demands, end of story. Well, Mm -hmm. how can there be anything like that? And again, I'm going to gloss over some some pretty big kinds of issues. But if the whole story about what I am as a human being is told in the language of physics and chemistry, 
if all I am is the end result of a very, very long process of Darwinian evolution, if that's it, if that exhausts the the facts about where I and my brain came from, right? Well, where in that story is there room for moral obligations, right? Yeah, like, where do you get an idea of fairness and justice? Exactly, exactly. And that's that sort of bleeds into the second half of the point, which is why would I trust my brain mm-hmm. <laughs> to tell me what's actually right and wrong or, or, or true and false when it comes to morality? If my brain was randomly programmed... By a bunch mm-hmm. of chance and just yep. atoms banging together. I mean, the the only the only thing evolution cares about is producing. If we're talking about atheistic evolution, right? If, we, if we're saying in a godless universe, then the reason we have the brains we do is because through undesigned uh, random mechanisms and through this process of mutation and genetic drift and so on, as our brains got more complicated. Um, they produced behaviors that helped us stay alive or helped our ancestors stay alive and pass on their genes. That's it. Full stop. That's where our brains come from. That's what they're good at doing is keeping us alive and passing on our genes. Why in the world would a machine that is created for that function be a machine that would also tell us what's actually just and unjust? There's a there's a quote. I might I might point to this, Tommy, as as kind of encapsulating what I think the atheist really has to say about morality. And this is a, a biologist by the name of E.O. Wilson wrote this, and it's a quote that stuck with me for a lot of years. He said, "Morality is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate." Fobbed, fobbed. Yeah, he wrote fobbed. I, I mean, he's kind of, kind of pretentious, but um, it's a great <laughs> line. Um, right. It's, Say it's, it again because I, I couldn't get past the word fobbed. I didn't hear the rest. Stay with me, Tommy. Stay with me. The um, We're going to get through this together, buddy. Uh, morality is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate. Right? That is, the reason we have moral feelings, the reason that we have a conscience is simply because it was an evolutionary advantage when our ancestors started feeling sympathy for each other and started being willing to engage in some kind of sacrificial behavior because that helped the tribe to that survive. the whole tribe. Exactly. Yeah. But that is the only reason we have those feelings, right? There's no, there's no rational foundation for it. It's not telling us something deep and true about how we actually got to live our lives, right? It's just an illusion and we experience it in a very powerful way because it was adaptive for our ancestors to have those feelings. Okay. Exactly. But that's not what morality is. Like, I think, you know, the experience of being a moral agent and thinking through rights and duties and obligations, like, I I think it's, it's kind of similar to the C.S. Lewis argument from Desire stuff that there's something here pointing us to something deeper and bigger and more important than just my own, you know, satisfaction of desires and, and so on. Um, so... That would be the last one. Again, as we noted, we're, we're pretty close to the end of time. Um, but, but the way I would encapsulate it is, again, I think morality is a big problem for atheism in two distinct respects. One is where the heck do moral obligations come from uh, mm-hmm. if we acknowledge that they're, you know, they're not just things we invent, but they're things that we need to, to recognize and respond to. We have a duty to treat people in a certain way. Um, where do those obligations come from is the first problem. And then 
how in the world can we possibly trust our brains to be the kinds of things that would <laughs> tell us what the true obligations actually are? That's the other problem. Okay. So in my mind, I sort of sum this up in much simpler language, <laughs> and it's not as precise, but I, I see it as laws have lawgivers. Hmm. Moral laws have lawgivers. And like we were saying before with the cosmological arguments, physical laws have lawgivers. And you can't break those laws of uh, of physics. And if you jump off a building, it's not going to go well for you. Yeah, you don't end. get a lot of options with those laws of physics and, in general. Uh, and the same thing. You break moral laws, you, you don't go unscathed either. Yeah. Those, no, they hurt us. They hurt other people when we break those laws. Yeah, and, and damage ourselves, right? That that's yeah. And uh, and the other thing was just the real pithy way Dostoevsky said it, uh, and uh, when he said, when he, pu he puts on the lips of one of his characters, uh, "Without God, all things are permissible." Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the idea. Um, that's uh, yeah. There is <laughs> there's a bajillion different coherent moral frameworks you could adopt. From the ethics of Mother Teresa to the ethics of Adolf Hitler. And as long as they're coherent, I don't see how in an atheistic universe you can possibly say that one of them is more rational or more true than another. And that is a huge problem, it seems to me, for the atheist. If, if you think there are things that are right and wrong, then I think that should fairly quickly lead you to belief uh, in a, a moral lawgiver, to use that phrase that you just did. All right. Well, thank you so much for the crash course through some of these arguments or reasons to believe in God. Well, thank you for was, having me. Uh, uh, yeah, I learned a lot and I like how you articulate things and, and define things. So I hope this has been a help for our listeners here and have a little more courage, even if you can't repeat these <laughs> arguments back, hopefully at different points throughout this episode, you're like, oh yeah, that does make sense. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, hmm. Yeah, yeah, isn't it funny how the universe is just seems to be like pre-programmed to? Yeah, exactly. This. And it, you know, if I can throw out one word of encouragement, I mean, it. You know, <laughs> not everybody has time to like dig into all the literature that's out there, but but some of the basic ideas are pretty straightforward. And if you can make a habit of of turning back to these kinds of questions with some regularity, you might find that they start sort of falling into place. And so somebody says, well, why do you believe in God? And it's like, well, you know, there's a few reasons. You know, I, I think that the universe needs an explanation for its existence. And it seems like science has uncovered a lot of really interesting features that look like intelligence at work. Um, and I, I notice that there's this longing that so many people feel for more than what physical life offers. And, and also we have this moral awareness. And, and all of those four things seem to point to a reality that that looks like theism, right? It looks more like a God-charged universe than an atheistic one, right? That's not a rigorous way to spell it out, but it's probably pretty useful for the average person. And if there are folks who are like, eh, philosophy, no thanks. <laughs> uh, I mean, everybody does philosophy. That's true. It's very hard to avoid. You can't live through life without having a philosophy and yeah. sort of living by it. But if if this this isn't your sort of thing, but you stuck with us to the end of the episode. Yeah, I think it's thanks. also worth mentioning. You also got out of like three weeks of purgatory if you don't like it and you stuck through <laughs> to the end. It's also worth mentioning that uh, there are other signposts, like you said. Mm -hmm. Some people truly are converted by beauty. Mm -hmm. And I saw a stat. It was, uh, they did a study of young people, like in their 20s and 30s, who decided to join the church. And 16%, I believe, said it was because of the beauty 
the physical beauty of the physical church building mm -hmm. that I walked into and started to pray in and worship at. Wow. And it's like, yeah, man, architecture. That's for real. <laughs> that's pretty good. Like that's art, mosaics, sculpture, yep. painting. And, you know, one other thing, um, <laughs> since you've allowed me to go over time a bit, I almost brought up something like this when we we're talking about morality. I mean, there is a challenge, right, for all of us. Do we live up to what we say is true and beautiful and good? And boy, it can be tempting when you get interested in these kinds of philosophical arguments to just try to win win the fight, right? You, you try to score points and, and show the atheist how wrong they are. But look, if, if you're looking for something that's going to speak powerfully to a person's heart, I mean, Jesus did not say, uh, they will know you're my disciples because you're so good at doing, uh, you know, natural theology. Yeah. They'll know you're my you, disciples. Because you convinced them with a bunch of words. Exactly. They'll you know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. Yeah. And if we're not modeling that Christ-like love in our parishes and in our families and in our neighborhoods, um, all the arguments in the world aren't, aren't going to do any good. Yeah. And that's sort of the beauty, too, of our, our wide array of saints, you know? Mm. We've got the St. Thomas Aquinas's, but we also got the Mother Teresa. That's right. I love that. So, if you're that more the, the Mother church. Teresa, yes. I mean, yeah, you got to be. Yeah. Like, love people till it hurts, and <laughs> then love them some more, <laughs> and then the only thing that's left is more love and more Christ. And, and then you can give them Thomas's Summa. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Matt Jordan, and I'm so happy you're going to come back for that that big doozy next time of how could a good and loving God allow evil in the world. But for now, and until then, thank you, and God bless you, and myself and our listeners appreciate you sharing some of the wisdom and, and the, uh, the knowledge that you have. Thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to, to have these conversations, Tommy. Thanks for the opportunity. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us. <laughs>